0: Will you please stand as we read together from God's word before Rick comes to preach. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. This is the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning we have where we can gather together and reflect on who we are because of who you are, what you've done for us. May we this morning be blessed by these words from Peter. May we understand with great appreciation the greatness of what you've done for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. In uh, 2013, the Oxford Dictionary, or at least the people that run the dictionary, chose its word of the year, and its word of the year was the word selfie. Now, selfie is a word that's entered the popular culture, the vocabulary of nearly all of us now. A selfie is, of course, a person who takes a, a picture of themselves and, and often on social media posts it. And so I'm not today critical of those who post a lot of selfie, but I think on Instagram, there's some billion selfies on Instagram. And in fact, I think in the recent update, at least to the Apple phone that I have, it now knows when you've taken a picture of yourself based on the picture and it then categorizes it in your photo as a selfie. So it's categorized all these pictures of yourself as a selfie. But why do we post pictures of ourselves on social media? In part because we want others to know, first, maybe the good life we're leading. Uh, Secondly, to portray ourselves to others so they know something about us. And so there is this understanding of ourself that comes to us <clears throat> that is projected externally, and we want people to see us from the outside, see us externally. And we often think that our true identity can be deciphered from a picture of where we're at and what we're doing. And so we post these selfies. Now, the idea of doing that is, is first of all, I, I'm not critical of that. But secondly, the problem with posting a selfie is when you take a picture of yourself with your cell phone, for example. Your arm is typically about two or three feet shorter than it needs to to keep from distorting the picture. And so, you know, when you take your camera out, as I have here, and you take a picture of yourself, what you're doing is uh, taking a distorted picture of yourself. And so what you have to be careful of is to make sure... Let's take a picture. All right, everybody smile. All right, now, this will be on my social media at some point, perhaps, so there we all are. But... You all look good, but my face is round and distorted because my arm is too short. And all of our arms, if our arms were two feet longer, it would work well for the selfies, but not good for our shirts. But uh, when you take a selfie, you're distorted. Now, the scientists at NASA and others have got together and they invented a selfie stick, which extends the length of the picture so it gets a better picture of yourself. And with that, we have a clear view of who we are, at least externally. But who are we really Internally. What are we really made of? What is our true identity? And we ask these questions because all of us, all of humanity for millennia have asked the question, you know, who am I? And I know it sounds like a deep philosophical question. Maybe you don't think that way, but you do think that way. You're always asking yourself, who am I really? Now, in the Eastern cultures, and we're in the West, but in the Eastern cultures, there's often this answer that they would give, which is, I am a child of my parents. I'm a parent to my children, I'm a sibling to my siblings. They view things more relationally. And so their identity historically has been more of an analysis of a relational aspect, who they are relationally. In the West, having developed something more of an independence one from another, broken these sort of social bonds where we're each our own maker, we do our own thing, we no longer so much identify ourselves relationally, but based on our accomplishments what well, we've done so when we ask you know who am i or somebody asks who are you you might answer well i went to this school this is my job and this is what i do and this is what i've accomplished and so in the west we have something of a different view of our own personal identity but what is our true identity now the greatest thing about being human the great thing is is we have the ability to reflect on <clears throat> our past and to project forward into our future now how many of you have dogs you have a dog right some have cats uh, researchers tell you that cats have a better memory than dogs. <coughs> dogs don't have memory, not in the sense that we normally think of it. Now, uh, we have a couple of dogs. We got a new dog uh, in the recent months or so, and, and I don't think my wife knows this yet, but uh, uh, the shoes that we keep in the den, hidden from the dog, were removed from the den and put in the, the lobby of the, the house, the, the, what do you call it, the doorway. And the new dog ate at least one shoe from four different pairs <laughs> this morning. That was just an hour and a half ago, a couple hours ago. So the dog didn't know what the rules were. But we have another dog that did know the rules. All of us here in life are trying to understand the rules of life. But the problem with a dog is it doesn't have a reflective memory. Your dog has an associative memory, and so when it sees you driving up, it gets excited because it associates you with the one who gives it food, the one who pets it, the one who cares for it. And so there's an association there. Yesterday afternoon, I was uh, in the cold weather, just sitting in my little chair and nest, you know what I have, and reflecting back over the summer. This past summer, you know, we go to the mountains and we spend time up there and we take the dog and the dog loves being in the mountains. And while yesterday I was thinking about our time in the mountains, in the woods, under the stars, my dog was laying there, but not thinking about that. They have no ability to think backwards in time and reflect on past events. They don't think about the good times in life from their youth. They don't project forward into the future about what life might be. God made us as humans with that ability. And so we have to use that ability to understand who we are and where we're going. What is the purpose of our life? Where are we going? What is the meaning of it all? And part of the the significant part of being a believer is to know that God has an answer for us. Now, unbelievers don't have an answer to these questions, instead, they have to supply an answer. And so uh, uh, the, uh, the atheist would supply, say the answer is well, there is no destiny for you. There is no future. You will die and the atoms of your body will decay and become atoms of the earth again and recycle through the universe in that way. And that's all there is. There's nothing more to you than that. An existentialist would say that you have to find meaning in your life by doing something. Affirmatively make meaning in your life. And so find whatever it is. Do something to find purpose in your life. And so the existentialists will say you have to make meaning in your life. And often as Christians, as believers, we kind of get confused by that sounding board in our world, and we don't think deeply enough about what God has told us about who we are. And that's what Peter's doing here today in this passage, telling us who we are as believers. Now, Peter's not the first to do this. Last year, we went through the book of Acts, and you remember in chapter 17, we saw Paul arrive in Ephesus and... Paul goes to Ephesus and he's dealing there with the, 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 uh, the, the, the people of Ephesus, Ephesus the, the, the atheists and the unbelievers and all. And so he's answering their questions. Now in Ephesus, and Ephesus was at the time the fourth largest city in the world. It was the New York City or the Paris or the London of the world. It had everything. It had a large uh, theater. It had a large marketplace, the Agora. <coughs> and so Paul is dealing with modern culture there. He's working with them. One thing that they had in the Roman world back at that time was this particular uh, uh, social norm, which was when a child was born, the father had the right to decide whether or not to keep that kid. And so the baby was laid before the father and the father could either pick up the child and keep it or reject it. And they might reject it for a variety of reasons. First of all, it might be a birth defect and they didn't wanna have to care for a baby that had some obvious birth defect. Uh, maybe it was of the wrong gender. I wanted a boy or a girl and got the wrong gender, and so they might reject it. Maybe uh, the child was illegitimate, and so we didn't want responsibility for an illegitimate child, but for whatever reason, they would reject the child. And the child that was rejected was then maybe picked up by somebody else before it died and cared for. That child was adopted. And so when Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the Ephesian church, he's telling them about adoption. He says that we as believers have been adopted. We've been chosen by God, picked up, and taken by God, and and made part of God's family. And in 1 Peter, as we saw in chapter 1 and uh, verse 17, he speaks there also of us being part of the brotherhood, the family. And in chapter 2, he does that as well, talks about us being part of the brotherhood. And of course, the word brotherhood, family, it's all the same sort of generic idea. It's all of us are part of a family. And so Paul and Peter are emphasizing this idea that we are part of God's family. That's what binds us together. And as Thanksgiving approaches here in the next uh, few days, we will, many of us, get together with our family. And there's something hopefully special and unique about being together with your family, with those who are your blood, with those who are uh, close to you, because there's an intensity and a duration of love that goes back in time. But when we think about our (coughs) self-identity, We can think about a couple of things. First of all, it's a self-awareness of, of who we are. So we have this. But it's an awareness of ourself through time. And secondly, it's an evaluation of our worth. You know, what makes us valuable? And so it could be, on the one hand, where we, we've uh, determined value based on how others value us, how they look at our contribution to their lives. And we all want to be valued, appreciated, accepted for what we do for others. And we appreciate that. We need that. We need that encouragement. But there's also an internal sort of analysis of our own value. What makes me valuable to me? What have I done? Have I met my potential, my expectations? And most of us, at some point in our life, we realize that we didn't. We, we thought we're going along pretty well. And we find out in life we didn't become all that we thought we could. Uh, and so we feel the burden of this life and our failure to meet our own expectations. A dog never senses its failure in life to be something and never contemplates its, its own death or suicide. A dog doesn't commit suicide because it failed, but we as humans often struggle with these sort of issues of depression and others to the point of even suicide because we know that there's something that we failed in life, we've missed in life. And so our self-identity becomes just critically important. Now Peter here, in this passage we've talked about this morning, is talking about that. And and there's a couple of uh, things uh, before we begin that I think of interest as well. When you think about why people who know something about the Christian church or know something about church, maybe they grew up in a church and have rejected it. Maybe they've seen it from the outside. In part, there's two basic reasons why people reject the Christian faith that we preach here. One is, as we've talked about in the past, is the, the issue of the problem of suffering. And they can't answer the question why God allows suffering in this world. And so they reject Christianity because they can't understand why God would allow this this suffering in this life. But the second reason that people often reject the Christian faith is because they've been too close to it and they've seen it up close. And they get the sense that there's nothing different about a Christian who claims to be a believer than there are in the other places of their life. And so they don't look at believers in a church as being changed in some significant way. They have their own power struggles in the church. They have their own uh, greed, and they have their own uh, backbiting and stabbing. That's why Paul and Peter and John and the other writers of the New Testament are always admonishing us as believers to remember that you're part of a great family, and you don't do those things. And in part, you don't do those things because that's what unbelievers on the outside see. And if they see that the inside of the church is no different than their place at work— or the other places that they associate and deal with people, if we're no different, then they don't see a reason to become uh, a believer. They don't see any reason to come closer to the Christian faith or look at it closer. So people don't reject the Christian faith because they've studied religion closely and made an intellectual analysis of it. It's either the issue of suffering or it's the issue of who we are and how we act and what we do. And so what Peter and Paul and the others are doing throughout the New Testament is regularly telling us, think about who you are. So again, in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians are built on the admonition that you were adopted, you were redeemed, you are chosen by God, you're part of his family. When you get to chapter 4, only then does Paul begin to argue, therefore, live differently. Therefore, change the way you live because you're different. So it begins with our understanding theologically of who we are, and then Paul works into the practical. Now, Peter, in these two verses of chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, is concluding this theological argument. When you turn over to verse 11, as we'll see next week, and what follows in verse 11 and all, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, abstain from the passion of the flesh. And he goes on. It's next week in verse 11 that it begins to then build on your identity to tell you to abstain from doing these evil things. So all of the practical... Admonitions in the scriptures are always built on the theological understanding of who we are. Now, when we come to this passage today, Peter is, again, drawing this whole introductory theological argument to a climax. He's saying now that this is what really matters. This is who we are. And he's done a few things in this passage. He said, again, first of all, in verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter, this morning, would ask you to contemplate deeply these simple ideas as to who we are. Who we are, really. Now, what Peter's doing, as we'll see, is drawing deep from imagery in the Old Testament. And so, this morning, we're going to look at a number of Old Testament passages that sort of uh, give us background to where Peter's at. Of course, when Peter grew up, he was taught what was our Old Testament, what was to them, the Bible, uh, but that's where he learned it. And so when Peter's now writing to the new believers, he's drawing on this imagery. Some of, us, of the new believers were uh, Jewish and had this background, but others were Gentiles and did not. But throughout, Paul, uh, Peter is drawing on this imagery. So he speaks here of this chosen race. Now, if you wish, you can turn over to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Let's just read a few verses from Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. And here Moses is describing something about who the people of Israel are. And so beginning in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Moses reminds the the, the people of Israel, who's now escaped Egypt. We saw this in this past year in our study of Exodus. God brought them out of Egypt, redeemed them, saved them, brought them through the Red Sea and began their journey toward the promised land. And he, he did that because he loved them. He chose them and he loved them. And so what we see first uh, when Peter talks about us being a chosen race, he's reflecting back on the Jewish understanding of themselves being in a covenant with God from their father Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And so we have the children of Israel. These are family, and they go back to Abraham. They are a race. They were a chosen race. And so God chose this family through Abraham to be his chosen people. But now Peter comes along as the church is beginning and says, you, the new believers, are part of this chosen race. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were related by blood, right? They were related by blood through Abraham. Maybe they're distant cousins way out, but they were related by blood. But now we see this idea of being a chosen race being extended to all of humanity for those who believe. And so we might initially ask the question, are we now related by blood? And the answer is, well, not as closely as they were. But the true answer is, yes, we are related by blood with other believers, right? We're related by whose blood? By the blood of Christ. And so when you become a believer, you are now joined with other believers through that blood relationship with Christ. When Christ dies and he makes that sacrifice, we are joined with other believers as part of God's family. And so we are part of that chosen race, those people that God loves. <clears throat> now, this idea of, a, of, of a, a chosen race speaks primarily to a corporate understanding. All who are believers are part of this chosen race, but it does have personal implications. We can think individually of ourselves uh, and understand that we, too, are part of that chosen family by God. So let's just talk a moment about this idea of being chosen, chosen by God. Uh, We could just skip over this today, but I'm just going to spend a few minutes speaking briefly to this point. And it's the idea simply that God, in his own sovereignty, and his own love, chose you and gave you his love. Gave that to you of his own free will. And so let me just give you a couple of things to think about in terms of this idea of being the elect. The Greek word used here is eklektos. Uh, eclectos means to choose, uh, an eclectic is one who chooses maybe different types of furniture from different styles and puts them in the same room. There's a, a p- this pops in my head. There's a pizza place called Mod's pizza, you know, Mod's pizza. It's where you get to go basically choose your own toppings on your own pizza. It's like subway. And so you choose your own toppings. And so I was there just a month or so ago and I chose all of my favorite toppings on the pizza. And you know what happens to a pizza when you choose everything you like? It makes a really bad pizza. It's like too much conflicting things in it. It's just its not good. You want to choose something that kind of goes together better. But what God has done is he's chosen us. Now, let me just give you a few things. First of all, we, we think in terms of election because the Bible teaches it. Many places it's spoken of. Let me read a few verses uh, for you. Uh, in Romans 9, verse 11, uh, Paul uses... Jacob and Esau, to illustrate this, he says, though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. It's not because of the good things you did that God chose you. It's because of his own sovereign love he chose us. And in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And if you today are the recipients of God's compassion, it's only out of God's love for you and not because of anything good in you that God shows you his compassion, shows you his love. Jesus himself said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So Christ himself taught this idea that it's the Father who chooses and brings us to God. So God in his love for us chose us. Now when you think about that, We think about the power of that. It's nothing that we did. So we don't view our own uh, uh, commitment to God as being because we're better than others. We're wiser than others. If when you got to heaven, God was to ask you, you know, why do you think you're a believer? You wouldn't stand and say, well, because I I, analyzed the issues uh, completely and I made the right choice based on my own understanding of reality. And I chose you because I made the right judgment in my own intellect. And that's not what you would say. You would say, when God asks you, why are you here? You would say, because you chose me. You love me. You brought nothing of your own to this salvation. God chose you out of his own love. So there's, first of all, the Bible teaches it. Secondly, Paul shows us that this idea makes us fearless. And so over in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? You never have to worry about missing anything as a believer because God's already chosen you. And so you can be fearless. Who can bring a charge? Nobody. Paul was encouraging believers of his day to know that there's something great about being a believer. God is there with us. God is for us. It also makes us humble. That's part of it. When we stand before God, we don't stand there as though we did this on our own, but it's, it's humbling to know that God made us what we are. Now, There's a number of things we could say, but the idea is quite simple that what God has done is he has shown his love to us. And we think about God's love, how it comes to us, undeserving, not because of anything we did, not because of our own uh, uh, greatness, because God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that we would choose him. Instead, God chose us while we were dead, while we had nothing to offer. His gift to us is the faith that makes us alive in regeneration, and causes to be redeemed. It's all the work of God. And so when God says you're part of his chosen race, understand it's because of his love for us. And that should give us a magnificent sense of who we are. God's the one who picked us, like the the baby in the agora who's left by the father in the ancient world, left on the ground to die. God comes along and picks us up and and brings us into his own household. And so we have that. The second thing that uh, Peter talks about is that we're a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. There's a lot we could say about this. Uh, over in Exodus chapter 19, where Peter is drawing from when he uses these words is from Exodus 19 and verse 5, and you can uh, mark a note there or, or turn there. But, uh, but here, Moses in Exodus 19 is thinking about what God has done for the Israelites in bringing them out of slavery from Egypt, redeeming them, giving them a new hope, a new life, Fulfilling the promises he made. And so in Exodus 19. Now therefore. If you will indeed obey my voice. And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession. You shall be my treasured possession. Among all the people. For all the earth is mine. And here's where uh, Peter draws from. And you shall be to me. A kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. So we're going to see a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Now think about what a priest does. A priest, that's, that's a job. And with any job, there's maybe a job description which explains what the job is. And so first you might think there's qualifications, character qualifications. If you're uh, looking for a job or hiring somebody, you want to make sure they have the proper qualifications. Whether it's education, licensing, or maybe moral character. So you have to have certain qualifications. And then secondly, there's duties that go along with a the job. They have to be able to fulfill these duties. And the priests of the Old Testament had certain qualifications, in part had to be part of a a family, Uh, but then even more than that, they had duties to fulfill. And so when Peter says that we are now a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood, he's drawing on this imagery that they would have of their own priests from their own ancient world saying that you're now that, that's what you are, and that's what we are as believers, And so what does a priest do? There's a number of duties, but one great passage is Deuteronomy chapter 20. The first four verses there. And notice this story as it unfolds describing what the priest is doing. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Now, here's that rousing uh, Lombardi-type speech that the priest gives. Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So what the priest is doing is first rallying The the others, the believers, keeping them together, keeping them on point. When we think of ourselves as fellow priests, and of course this idea kind of got new currency at the point of the Reformation where Martin Luther began to see that we all share in this priesthood. We're all fellow priests, different from the Catholic Church which had the Pope and all of that intercession went through the Pope to God, they believe. Luther said, no, that's you. We're all priests. You don't have to be specially ordained in some way. When you become a believer, you become a priest. And so you have these duties. So you think about what a priest does. One thing in the Old Testament a priest did was to stand with his back to the congregation facing towards the the place of God in the temple. He had his back to the congregation because he was representing them before God. And so the priest's job was to represent the people... In a petitionary sense, praying for them, interceding on their behalf through the sacrifices and the rituals to bring the people's request for forgiveness before God. And in the same way, that's one of our responsibilities in this sense is to pray for one another, to lift one another up, to sense and know that there's something that we each need from each other. We are all burdened with the responsibility of praying for each other, loving one another, encouraging one another being there for each other. And so the priest had these types of responsibilities. The priest, of course, had this intimate relationship with God. There was a sense that the priest should know God in a deeper way. And, if, of course, as you began to uh, go through uh, the, the, the training, the understanding, the priest was the one person who had that closest experience with God. He stood with them. And now each of us as a priest should equally share in that intimate relationship with God. We don't need to have some ordained priest stand between us and God. We can go directly to God himself in prayer at any moment of our life at any time. Just as as we saw last week from Nate, they built a temple out of stones and had a priesthood there. We now, as we saw last week, are the temple not in need of other. We are the stones. We are the living stones. And so as our own priesthood and our own temple, we are always in the presence of God and can go to God that way. And so there is this idea that we are these priests. <clears throat> now, you think about, and Luke talks about that moment in Peter's life. And so Peter's talking about this royal priesthood. And when you read First Peter, always be thinking about the circumstances in Peter's life which may have given uh, rise to his thoughts in First Peter. But if you look at First Peter, you think back to that moment in Peter's life when he was with Christ at the Last Supper, and they have that moment. And then, uh, then Peter says, I'm going to be with you, Lord. I will never forsake you. I will never uh, abandon you, betray you. And then Jesus says to him, you know, Satan has chosen you to be the one that he sifts out. And you're going to suffer under that temptation And Peter says, I never will. And then Jesus tells him, before the cock crows, three times you'll deny me. And, of course, the story goes on. Peter denies Christ three times when a little girl challenges him, aren't you with Jesus? No, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him three times. But what Jesus told Peter in Luke 23 is that I will be there praying for you. You see, what Jesus said is I will be praying for you. And that's what brought Peter through. It was that power of Christ in his prayer for Peter that brought him through. Even in Peter's own weakness and own fear and failure, Christ brings him through. In the same way, Christ is our high priest, right? He's our high priest. You think about the priests in the Old Testament. They had what they called an ephod, this gold sort of cape they wore. and, And on top of it, a breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones. And on those 12 stones were written what? The names of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when the priest went before God in the temple, he wore that breastplate with those 12 stones and the names of the 12 tribes written on that as representative of the fact that he's there praying, interceding, performing these uh, uh, ritualistic acts of sacrifice on behalf of the people. When Jesus is our high priest, you see, it's almost the same thing. When Jesus, as our high priest, stands as our priest before God, it's as though so he has your name written on his heart. And that's why Peter came through those troubling and trying times in his life, and the same reason we, too, can't come through the trials of this life, because Jesus is our high priest, interceding on our behalf. Even when we don't know how to pray for ourselves, he's there praying for us. So that's this idea of being a priesthood of believers, this idea of being a priesthood. We are chosen by God. We are a priesthood. <coughs> And then he says they're a holy nation. The third thing he says in this passage, you're a holy nation. We can think of the idea of holy, and we could spend forever talking about what it means to be holy. And that's really important because what holiness is, is on the positive side, it's doing acts of righteousness, right? We have to do good things. That's our holiness being driven outward. But it's also remaining free of blemish. And James talks about that in James 1.27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And he speaks of that which is at the core of our Christian belief. To look out for orphans and widows in their distress. To do good deeds and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we're to keep ourselves from being polluted. Now what we want to do is treat our life as believers. Not as a club. Now, many of you belong to certain types of clubs or associations, and, and as professionals, many of you have uh, professional associations. You go to meetings, you know people that do what you do, and, and many of us have those things in life. Uh, as an attorney, I, I'm a member of a number of bar associations, and I really just don't like being a part, spending my time with lawyers all the time. So that sort of a club just has no real deep interest in my life. But as a church, this is not simply a club, you see. When he says that you're a holy nation, the idea of nation here, the Greek word genes, it's that we're a a, a genus as such. We are a culture. We're not a club. It's more like a culture. So we are more deeply filled with what it means to believer. We are this this culture. We're not a subculture of the American culture. We're a counterculture to it. We stand against what the modern world is. What God has done is he's called us to be, as believers, a holy nation called out from the the nation we're a part of here to be something special, to be something different. That's who we are. We're part of this holy nation. We are part of that. And so there's always this motivation to make sure that we're living a holy life because that's what unbelievers see. And if you're not living a holy life, either doing good works on the one hand and refraining from evil on the other... The unbelievers just don't think there's anything special about being a member of a church. And that's why we have to be this way. The fourth thing he speaks about is a people belonging to God. When he speaks here about this people, we are a people that belongs to God. He's drawing from Deuteronomy 7, where again, Moses writes, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His Treasure possession. You think about what does that mean? To be God's treasure possession. Does anybody have anything they really treasure possession? Not not family. We'll just set that aside. Not one another. We know that. But a physical possession. We see these wildfires in California, and we don't know how many people died in those fires. We know many people attempted to escape. Some died going in to grab something they treasured. They never came out of the house. I saw one story of a, a, a daughter. She's about 20 some years old. Who said her father went back into the house to get something and never came back out? There's something he thought he treasured more than his own life, but he died looking for that. But what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Friday night, I went to, to the lecture over at LBC with Bruce Ware, a theologian who's in town. You know, the beginning of this past week, the Evangelical Theological Society was in town, and there were here a couple thousand of the world's best conservative theologians, believers, a lot of great men down there. I went down there on one day Tuesday and and sat in a few lectures. And and what a lot of it is, frankly, is a lot of sightseeing. It's a lot of people wanting to see other people. And so they get to meet each other like this. And there's a lot of sightseeing going on. At the end of this week, the uh, Society of Biblical Literature met. And that's more of those of a liberal persuasion. So downtown this uh, past few days has been those who are a, a liberal Religion professors, and so this week in Denver, we had nearly every religion professor in the world was in Denver this week downtown. Now I was over at this lecture with Bruce Ware, and on Friday night, when I got home, uh, at, at Deanne and my daughter were watching a movie called Toy Story, and and that has more relevance to you than the lecture I had uh, on Friday night. All right, they were watching the movie Toy Story. And then Saturday morning, uh, Deanna and, De- and Chris and I were talking about what Toy Story is about. And let me tell you what it's about. We t- I talked about this. It's about, it, has anybody seen the movie? Most of you seen the movie, right? Has anybody not seen the movie? It's been out since 1995. And so you're, you're late. <laughs> Toy Story is about a couple of characters. One is the cowboy doll named Woody. Now, Woody is the possession, the treasure possession of Andy. Andy is his six-year-old possessor, right? So Andy has Woody. But Woody has now lived with Andy long enough to know that every birthday and every Christmas, there's some new toy that comes into the world. And so in Toy Story, the toys that are in Andy's bedroom all come alive when Andy's not looking. And as kids, we don't know that that's not true, right? You can't see them alive because they turn inanimate when you look at them. So Andy uh, has this toy, Woody. And Woody's always fearful of the next toy that comes along, feeling like he might be displaced. And then on one birthday, he is displaced by who? Buzz Lightyear. And so Andy gets a new toy, which is this Space Ranger, voiced by Tim Allen, a Space Ranger that has all this energy, all this. But the, the thing, that, and this is the point, Woody is older and knows that life is transient and that you will one time pass and you will be recognized of having little value as Andy your possessor finds something to treasure more than you. And so this new toy Buzz Lightyear comes into the family and Andy uh, and then Woody now sees Buzz Lightyear as a threat because now Buzz Lightyear is going to supplant him. He will lose his place. And so the movie goes on with this conflict between Woody and Buzz Lightyear as they struggle Woody knowing that life is transient fretting about it and Buzz Lightyear, not knowing that, just plunging headlong into life as though nothing matters. And that's a picture of where you're at. All of us are. When you're young, when you just uh, have nothing uh, to fear, you go into life thinking everything will be just the way you want it to be. Everything's going to work out the way you want it. You believe your own myths. And so like Buzz Lightyear, he believed his myth that he really was a space ranger saving the world. And when you're young, we think about things in life that way. We think we really are the myth that we construct in our world. But as we get older, that myth begins to die as we see that we're really not all we were cracked to to be in our own mind. And we become more like a Woody as we realize that we are passing this scene, that we will one day be gone, and that what we leave will be what? That's a struggle. As the movie comes to an end, Buzz Lightyear and Woody begin to reconcile as Buzz begins to realize... I am just a toy. I'm not the treasure possession I thought I was. I will one day be neglected, be boxed up in the closet and left in the garage. That's his fear. And sort of at the end of the movie, they both realize this. But they then begin to figure out a way to reconcile and maybe they can maintain the graces of Andy. But what happens at the end on Christmas? What does Andy get? A puppy. And it's the puppy now that supplants them both. They have at the end of the movie this fear that they really are going to be left and and neglected, that they're not the treasure possession they thought they were. What Peter's talking about here in this passage is that we really are that treasure possession of God. We're not going to be boxed up and left behind. We're not going to be neglected. And so in life, when we fret about our future, like Woody, instead think about the fact that we are a treasure possession. Our future is not a box in a garage, but it's in heaven eternally with God. If you're in the Buzz Lightyear sort of phase of life where you really think you can go headlong and that nothing matters except your own myth and your own mind, you will come to find out that that's not the case. Instead, you begin thinking about what really matters and to know that there is a future as well. That's what Peter is conveying in this book. as he says, you are a, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's possession. And that's what gives us this great value, that we are God's great possession that he holds us and loves us and will never let us go. And so when we see these, these ideas that uh, Peter develops here, we know that there's something more to it. So what is our identity? Where do we get it? Is it our accomplishments? Is it the good things we do? Is it our resume? You know, I, I work with a lot of doctors that are very smart and as a medical doctor, you're always part of the job is keeping a, a, a CV, a curriculum vitae, a resume basically of everything you've ever done. Of every paper you've ever written. Academics have to do this. Every uh, speech you ever gave. On and on. You keep track of that. And at the end of a life. I have CVs of doctors that are 40 pages long. Of all the things they've done in life. You can see every great thing they've done. And then one day they find out. That none of that really mattered in eternity. So it's not what we do. It's instead recognizing who we are. And what Peter's doing is telling us who we are. What Paul does in Ephesians and other places. To tell us who we are. We're adopted. We're redeemed. By God's love and grace, we're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a possession of God. That's who we are. And only in understanding the true nature of of who we are can we have that self-identity that matters. It's an identity that carries through time. Unlike the dog which can't see past tomorrow, can't plan for the future, everyone here has the ability to look past tomorrow, look at their life in the future and ask, where am I really going what am I really doing? What really matters? Who am I? And as a believer, you know that you're a child of God chosen by God and loved by God. That's being chosen by God. That's the message Peter has for us. And it's only when the church understands that, begins to build on that, when you as individuals and we as, as believers build on that identity that we can then make an impact in the world, that we can change the world in our own small way, whether it's in our family, in the place we work, in the schools we go to. Only when people know that there's something different about us and there can only be something different about you when you understand that there really is something different about you. Let's stand as we pray. Our Father, as we come before you this morning. We thank you so much that you have chosen us, that we are part of this chosen race. We're part of this royal priesthood that we are your possession. God, may we know in greater measure the greatness of what you've done for us in loving us. May we demonstrate to those around us this same truth. For it's in Christ's name. We-